0: This is Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain and for healthcare professionals. I'm Paul Evans, and this edition's been funded by the Women's Fund
1: of Scotland. Men will very often speak of their loss of a role in the family, the fact that they can't provide anymore, they can't be a breadwinner anymore. You know, that they can't go out to work or provide that kind of leadership or physical help around the house that they hope to.
2: If you consider how women have accessed healthcare for pelvic issues such as menstruation, first sexual encounter, contraception, pregnancy, smear test, women are just used to talking about the abdominal pelvic area.
0: Do men and women experience pain differently? In terms of understanding, what's known about men's pain falls short of what we understand about women's pain. In 2015, psychologist Professor Ed Keogh, who's Deputy Director of the Bath Centre for Pain Research at the University of Bath, completed a selective review of men's health literature to consider them within the context of men's pain. Under the heading Men, Masculinity and Pain, its purpose in taking a men's health approach to pain was to view existing evidence in a different way and to identify potential gaps in our understanding not just of men's pain, but women's pain too. There are sex and gender differences.
3: For example, we know that men and women differ in terms of the amount of pain they experience and they report. Um, Here we know that, for example, that women tend to report more pain in more body regions over their lifetime in comparison to men. So we know there are these differences and we're quite interested in some of the reasons why there are differences.
0: So you're talking about the occurrence of pain rather than the severity of pain?
3: Well, it's all types of pain. So it's actually pain conditions. So if we look at some pain conditions and look at whether or not men and women, how represented are they in. In the clinic. So we know for some conditions women are you know, coming in with with more pain. So headache, lower back pain, those sorts of pains we typically find you know, the numbers are higher in women in comparison to men in the clinic. In addition to that we also know for example in laboratory type pain induction type uh, environments, so where we induce pain, there are differences in the amount of pain that's being reported. So pain thresholds and pain tolerance levels tend to be different in men and women. I think the key question is really why are there differences?
0: Well, first of all, we men, as no doubt you will say, we feel pain more than women.
3: Well, the evidence is actually contrary to that. In fact, if you look at the amount of pain that's being reported, um, then certainly women are reporting more pain in comparison to men. Now, that's not to say that men aren't experiencing pain, that men are in pain. They are suffering, and we we certainly do need to do things about this.
0: So what's going on there, then?
3: I think this comes back to the, the explanations around why there might be these sex and gender differences in pain. So we know there are differences. Why are there differences? Now some of the explanations are very biological. So we know there may be sex hormones may be involved in mediating some of these differences. But as we also know, sex and gender there are sort of more than biological factors but also social and emotional factors and psychosocial factors are also important so we're quite interested in the way in which these psychological and social factors have an impact on both the experience and also the reporting of pain and we think that might be particularly important for men and women.
0: I would take a stab at it and say we don't like going to the doctors we're not as open about our own bodies as women are
3: Yes, you know, the whole men's health agenda around, you know, how men are actually not going to their doctors, not explaining to others, you know, things about their pain, about health conditions. So we've sort of moved that into the pain area and asked, well, if there are limitations in, in how well men are reporting health experiences does that then translate into into pain clinics as well are men not very good at reporting pain men's health literature certainly is beginning to highlight that uh, there are these differences and there are possible explanations around why men might be under reporting health conditions have when we start looking at pain there's actually relatively little research that's actually looked at men and the way in which they actually report pain itself
0: could something to do with it be that if i sit in the waiting room of my gp practice I'm bombarded with posters about women pain. There are only two posters that I can think of about male-only pain testicular cancer, and I can't even think of the second one.
3: Yeah, I think there's a lot of expectations around pain and who experiences pain. In fact, you know, women are much better at going to their GPs and, and talking about you know, health conditions, including pain. Pain is much more regular, of course, for a number of women. So menstrual cycle-related pain, for example, is very common. Of course, women then are therefore more able to discuss this more readily. When it comes to males and male pain, it's not as normalised, if that makes sense. And so therefore, I think there may be a sort of inhibition around sort of discussing these sort of experiences.
0: I mean, the interesting thing, about what you said earlier mm. is the word masculinity, yeah. which is, well, masculinity is being a man.
3: Exactly, and this is what we're very interested in. When I talk about sex differences, as is difference between men and women. We know there are differences between men and women, but the variation that occurs within males and within females is much greater than the variation between the sexes so we need to understand this and one of the explanations could be something along the lines of gender which is the sort of the, the social norms, the conceptualization of what it is to be masculine, what it is to be feminine we think some of these are very important in terms of how people discuss and how they behave in front of others when it comes to pain.
0: I said tongue-in-cheek that we feel pain worse than women do, well of course that was tongue-in-cheek mm-hmm. but there is the expression man flu, and the, the general feeling that a man will stay in bed, it will be flu and not a cold. Do we confine our pain to the people we know?
3: Ooh, there's a couple of things embedded within that. I'll start off with the um, how media, society represents the expression of pain I think this is a very good example of the way in which um, the expression of emotions the expression of pain can actually be inhibited in some ways so actually if you think about the way in which we sort of develop as children you know whether or not crying as a boy is you know is punished in some ways you know but through saying don't don't act like that you're not acting etc whether or not that's being played out in the way in which we sort of discuss the way in which men actually express their emotions and express painful conditions that might be sort of reflected there. Again, from the men's health literature, what we actually know is that in terms of social support, there do seem to be differences, especially as we age. So the men's health literature certainly indicates that later on in life, in terms of the social support networks that are around, women have very good social support networks outside of the home. However, uh, Whereas men, on the other hand, tend to restrict it more within the home. So the problem is if you lose your partner, then for women there is actually a social support network around them, but for men it's not there as much. And so we have to think about ways in which we can actually sort of get men that sort of help. And one of the examples that's been used and developed in a number of countries has been the men's shed movement which is a way in which actually you're getting men together you know through activities but actually that could be a very good medium by which you can actually start talking about other sorts of issues such as health related issues of which of course we can include pain again I'll turn to the men's health literature where the, you'll see lots of sort of emphasis now on recognizing there might be differences in how you might approach men and women uh, especially around sort of health conditions and getting men to actually go to their GPS to talk to people about you know any concerns especially around pain and and other health conditions. Talk about it, don't leave it to the last moment, which of course can sometimes happen. I think by making it much more acceptable to talk about emotions, feelings, and the way in which
0: pain affects you is going to be good for men and women. That's Professor Ed Keogh, Deputy Director of the Bath Centre for Pain Research at the University of Bath. Now, he talked about pain being an expression of hurt and vulnerability, and that maybe men are less likely than women to come to terms with those feelings. But what about other self-conscious emotions, like shame, embarrassment or humiliation? Jeremy Gauntlet-Gilbert is Senior Clinical Psychologist at the
1: National Specialist Pain Service in Bath. Historically, in, in chronic pain research and practice, people have always been interested in understanding things like depression in pain, things like anxiety. But it also really seems true that the people with chronic pain live with a condition that is poorly understood. They don't always get nice, encouraging responses from other people. And therefore, they're very often in a position where they're constantly feeling embarrassed, self-conscious. What's wrong with you? i got a bad back. It's a rubbish answer. And so we just became interested in that from our clinical experience and then wanted to do some research on it.
0: From my own experience, I have chronic pain, I have fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're
1: embarrassed to smile in company just in case people think you're better or they judge you. I think it's true, isn't it? Because all of these conditions, they fluctuate in their severity. So people have better days and worse days. And one of the risks of that is people see somebody on a good day and they say, well, what's wrong with you then? You're obviously fine, you know. And so it's that kind of incomprehension which does make people very nervous. They're just not well-understood conditions. They're not seen as legitimate. Uh, Fibromyalgia being a, a case in point. People don't take it seriously. It's not leukemia. You have to look ill to be ill. Yes. Well, this is true. But one of the other things that happens around trying not to feel embarrassed or trying not to feel ashamed is people desperately trying not to look ill. Lots of people spend a lot of their time trying to put on a good face or only going out when they feel fine. And it's the flip side of what you were just saying. You know, the embarrassment drives people either to try and make damn sure they, that people understand how ill they are, or because they feel so misunderstood, they, they put a terribly brave face on things, and I'd only go out when they feel well.
0: Embarrassment, I, I mean, I've never felt embarrassed about my condition, mm. but I can see what you're saying, that if I don't
1: look ill enough, then I will be judged as a shirker, a malingerer. I think it's a real problem for people with pain because you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. You know, if people might well see you looking in pain, looking visibly uncomfortable and, and judge you as hamming it up or people see you on a good day or when you're trying to, go to put a good face on things and say, well, what's wrong with him?
0: And I think for people who, who are in work with chronic pain, mm. there's the impression, if you take sick leave, you are sick but when you go back to work, you are better.
1: Completely, yeah, for some reason, we've got this model, you know, which probably does work for the flu, that you're either, you're either sick or you're well, which just doesn't apply to the kind of conditions you, you see in chronic pain, and it's a real shame because very often people are almost punished for getting back to work, people who struggle back to work half-time, do a graded return. Instead of being treated with kind of Respect for their effort, they're almost hurried along. Why can't you improve it quicker?
0: If you can't do all the work, then why are you here?
1: <laughs> that has a ring of authentic <laughs> and painful truth around it, yes. That's one of those things. And I think that people end up being implicitly punished. And, and then employers say some things which can't be legitimate or legal sometimes about health and safety. I'm not sure we can have you around here because you don't look terribly safe on that chair. And And the upshot is, although probably nobody is trying to do the bad thing is that people with chronic pain end up almost getting a little bit punished for their very brave attempts to go back as much as they can and do as much as they can which isn't perfect.
0: The flip side of somebody in that situation is that they punish themselves because (laughs) They don't want the employers to manage their condition. They want to keep their employers at arm's length, if you like, because, Mm. no, I can manage this myself. Mm. Don't get involved, because if you get involved, you're going to cut my work down to half, and somebody else will look at me and say, what's he doing here? So it's not just employers.
1: People can, as you say, act to keep employers at arm's length because they're trying to self-manage, though possibly trying to self-manage in a worried way, like you say, worried of what the, the employer would do. But also a lot of people with chronic pain are just you know, before they ever had pain, there were people with very high standards. They're people who want to do a good job. They're people who dislike the idea of of, of half measures, you know the, And these are temperamental things. you know, human beings were human beings before they got pain. And a lot of people with chronic pain have really strong values for themselves and strong values for their working lives and and actually genuinely hate having to do what they feel is a half effort because of their pain. So either because of fear of what their employer will do, or because of their own standards for themselves, they can end up really, really flogging themselves, I think.
0: Is there a gender difference for people with chronic pain? Do men act differently from women?
1: I think it differs in form. Men will very often speak, and it's a little stereotypical but a little true, of their loss of a role in the family, the fact that they can't provide anymore, they can't be a breadwinner anymore, you know, that they can't go out to work or provide that kind of leadership or physical help around the house that they hope to. In many ways, that's not a million miles from women who are used to having, again, stereotypically, and these are stereotypes, uh, more of a caring role, who value their ability to to look after other people, to be a mother, to help other people, and who have strong values around, around nurturing other people. They feel pretty ghastly too. So I think the form is different, but I don't know if underneath it's all that different.
0: Perhaps men and women seek help in different ways.
1: I think so. I mean, it's a legendary issue in the broader literature of of men's, (laughs) men's terrible terrible healthcare seeking behavior, you know, and tendency to avoid things.
0: The shame and the
1: guilt and the anxiety for somebody who has chronic pain,
0: depression and guilt, they all feed into the chronic pain and the chronic pain feeds into all that. It's that cycle of pain, isn't it? And and Mm. you you need to break that, that cycle. So
1: which comes first, would you say? Another question is, which can you change easiest? Now, none of these things are easy to change, but if a person's got chronic pain, then the chances are they have a a pretty nasty unpredictable set of symptoms which comes and goes and there's not a right lot you can do about it. I don't know perhaps it's just my bent as a psychologist but it always seems to me that perhaps you could get in there with the with the emotions using some psychological techniques that we use and it's not easy because people were able to feel shame or able to feel low long before they had chronic pain you know these are things which everybody feels a little bit of their whole lives so I don't think You can never wave a magic wand and get people to a point where they never feel shame or guilt. And I'm not sure it would be a good idea if you did. i rather think that's what psychopaths are like. So shame and guilt is probably not necessarily a bad thing. But yes, we're certainly experimenting with using fairly established, you know, nothing radical, but established psychological techniques and the current psychological therapies to see if we could target those things directly.
0: So what are those therapies?
1: You've got to ask yourself If people are living with an obviously visible condition, you know, somebody who's using a stick, has chronic pain, and they're living in a society which isn't always kind uh, to people with disabilities, I certainly wouldn't go down the line of thinking we can get people to some lovely positive thinking world in which they never feel embarrassed. I think that's probably unrealistic. So instead, we tend to use more acceptance-based approaches, which kind of acknowledges that these unpleasant emotions are there, and they will be there. And until there's a revolution, and everybody becomes nice to people with disabilities, and I don't know when that's coming, until that happens, then people may have to find ways to carry their embarrassment with them whilst they get on with the stuff they care about. Now, you can tell there's not a should in that. I don't think people should put up with their embarrassment, but very often... These are some of the bargains which are in front of people with long-term conditions. Either do it and risk feeling embarrassed, or don't risk feeling embarrassed but never do it. And so we're looking at acceptance-based and mindfulness-based techniques in the psychological therapies that might, if a person chooses it, help them be able to be a little bit more embarrassed and carry on doing what they care about as well. It's not an easy sell. It would be a great deal easier to sell the lovely positive idea that you could you could walk around your life free from shame, but I'm not sure that's always realistic. And so that's one of the ways we tend to go at things.
0: The acceptance side of it, I guess, is accepting you have a condition mm. and that it's something you have to live with, but the condition isn't the driver of your life.
1: I think that's right. I think there's accepting that you have the condition. And the other thing when you're talking about what drives your life and what makes you do things and what stops you doing things is that if you can accept that you might feel a bit rotten whilst you're doing this, you might blush, you might feel like a bit of an idiot, and people aren't really taking you seriously, but that is something you are not happy but willing to take take with you as the price of doing something that you care about, then that's, I suppose, the kind of acceptance we're talking about. It's a tricky business, but it's an honest psychological approach and also one that makes it clear that difficult emotions aren't dangerous in and of themselves they're just uncomfortable and if we choose to then sometimes we can make the choice to do more of our lives and have that discomfort.
0: Jeremy Gauntlet Gilbert senior clinical psychologist at the National Specialist Pain Service in Bath. We're talking about gender differences in the experience of chronic pain and we've talked about emotional or psychological differences between the sexes But physically and biologically, and this is not new science, men and women are different. We also differ in our willingness to discuss or own up to problems, particularly if those problems are leading to pain in the pelvic region. Katrine Peterson is specialist physiotherapist at the University College London Hospital's Pain Management Centre. So what do we men suffer from that women don't?
2: That's a really good question because there's so little literature on it. We got some data ourselves on our service that we run for chronic abdominal pelvic pain. But that's a definition and a term that we have developed because it fits the population that we see. But when you actually look at the literature, it's very difficult to define exactly. But we have a list of syndromes, pain syndromes, based around the pelvic area and the abdominal area that we see. So typically, male pelvic pain will be described in the literature often as chronic prostatitis. So men will get pain in that area, affecting potentially their bladder and urinary frequency and sexual function, and often they will go to urology and have that prostate checked.
0: There's a gender difference here, isn't it? Men don't talk about their private parts or anything below their navel at all.
2: Absolutely. So it used to be quite difficult to get men coming forward, but when I recently looked at our data, on patients attending our chronic abdominal pelvic pain clinics. It turns out that we nearly have a third of patients who are men, so they are starting to come forward. One of the reasons why men don't come forward is if you consider how women have accessed healthcare for pelvic issues, such as menstruation, first sexual encounter, contraception, pregnancy smear test, women are just used to talking about the abdominal pelvic area, whereas men really have no particular reason to go unless they have a problem. Chronic prostatitis or chronic prostate pain syndrome is one of the typical syndromes that we see. But we also see you know, penile pain, testicular pain, and a non-specific pelvic pain and rectal pain. Um, lots of different conditions that all affect that particular area.
0: Now, prostate is something that possibly many men will recognize through tests for prostate cancer and things like that. Exactly.
2: So typically patients will go to urology for exactly that particular concern around prostate cancer because that's something that gets talked about. But what doesn't get talked about is when patients have pain for an unidentifiable cause or non-pathology, non-bacterial symptoms that they're getting that very much look like an infection, for example.
0: So who do you see?
2: So that's also a very good question. I I have men come into my clinic with very specific pain such as testicular pain or penile pain, and I have had patients come through the door looking at me saying, I have no idea what you could possibly do for me, because in the traditional sense, physiotherapy would be about working from a musculoskeletal model of exercise and potentially some manual therapy to stretch and relieve muscles, whereas I much more come from a chronic pain model, so once we have excluded any bacterial infection, anything cancerous, any form of pathology, we're now working with a chronic pain model. So I use the same strategies as I would use for any other pain condition, I just have to include things like urinary frequency and urgency, bowel movement and sexual function. But again, using the same strategies as I would do for any other pain condition as a pain management physiotherapist.
0: So as a physio, I mean, what do you do?
2: Good question again, because (laughs) once it comes to pain management, people get a bit more confused. So we are trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, most of us who work in pain management, because traditional, the medical model where you look at the end organ and trying to fix something, doesn't tend to work. So we need to look at a much more complex model in terms of chronic pain and start, first of all, working out why the patient here to see us. And often it's because they have some real good questions about why am I in pain? And they have some good questions about what can I do? Is it okay for me to exercise? Is it okay for me to bend? Am I gonna cause any further damage? And I think physiotherapists are very well placed because they've got the credibility of assessing risk in terms of movement and damage to tissues versus what can you get back to in terms of activity so a lot of what I do is talking about how does pain work in your body and why is it okay for you to have sexual intercourse why is it okay to let your bladder fill even though it's painful and why is it okay for you to get on with your life basically.
0: It seems like a reassurance thing rather than a treatment thing or perhaps the treatment is the reassurance.
2: Well absolutely so, so, so the newest research is coming out in terms of what you might term as reassurance where we might call explain pain or helping the patient to reconceptualize pain as not being due to damage or a pathology or a bacteria, but actually due to a dysfunction in the nervous system. That can really help patients to shift the way they live their life and improve their quality of life. But the newest research also show that it probably has a real impact on neural plasticity. So we can potentially actually change the nervous system by providing those types of explanations and getting the patient thinking differently about their pain.
0: Now neuroplasticity, that's a fancy term for rewiring the brain?
2: Rewind the whole nervous system. So we tend to not just talk about the brain, but the the brain's influence on the spinal cord and on, on the peripheral nervous system, so the hypersensitivity in peripheral receptors is important. So we shouldn't just be talking about the brain, we should also be talking about where does the connection between the brain and the painful structures and all the connections that could be affected by neural plasticity.
0: So as a man, as in many men, if I went to, if I had enough courage to come to you, a woman as well, about problems down below, and you started on at me and said, right, this is all in the mind, this is all in the head, I mean, how do you bridge that gap?
2: It very much depends on the Patient and what knowledge and beliefs they already have. By the time they come to see me, they've already seen one of our pain consultants who will have introduced them to the concept of chronic pain. Often they will have seen one of our pain nurses in terms of talking about medication, they will also have introduced them to the concept of chronic pain. They may also have attended what we call an information session for people with chronic abdominal pelvic pain, which is this unique opportunity for men to be in a forum with other men with similar problems. And again, we talk about chronic pain mechanisms and practical strategies to manage pain long-term. And that really means that by the time they come to see me, I can sit down with them individually and ask them, what do you think of that model? Does that fit with your symptoms? Does it fit with what you've been told? Is there anything we need to reconceptualise, so to speak, or help you understand? Of course, some patients will say, this is not for me. I'm still looking for a medical solution.
0: I know very few men who'd admit to having pelvic pain.
2: I think you are absolutely right, and hence why it's so important to air it today, for example, but also get the information out there. There are services that can help. There are a large proportion of men out there with chronic pelvic pain and abdominal pain, and it can be treated in the same way as any other chronic pain condition. But it should be recognised, and hopefully, if we can validate it and normalise it for men, they're much more likely to come forward and talk about it.
0: What advice would you give to men who have pain, who are perhaps too shy to talk about it?
2: Well, one of the things that Dr. Williams, one of our research psychologists, did was look at what's available on the internet. So my first advice is don't go on the internet (laughs) because unfortunately there's very little out there and the information is not good and not really in line with sort of current practice. But in the study that Williams did, She also asked men after they had consultations what were their main concerns and and I was interested to hear that men weren't necessarily overly concerned about a sinister disease such as cancer but they were actually just more concerned about a proper explanation and that does require in first instance an an examination and ruling out any sinister disease but then it does require probably a, a pain specialist to enable patients to fully understand the mechanisms because the last thing we want is going straight from you haven't got cancer is all in your head. That's not helpful. I also have to say that lots of GPs will not know what to do with men with pelvic pain. They wouldn't know where to send them. But there is a Pelvic Pain Network, which is a charity, which I would recommend people look at as well, because that will list pelvic pain services that you can say to your GP, I know there's a pelvic pain service here please could I at least have a a chance of being assessed there and see what's going on.
0: So being forearmed with a little bit of good information to help your GP help you is a good
2: idea? Yes, most certainly. The GP will be mainly concerned with ruling out any serious underlying pathology or disease. After that, it is hard for GPs to know exactly what to do because these services for chronic male pelvic pain are, are few and far between. But there are services out there that will see men and support them in living what is essentially a very difficult condition.
0: Katrine Peterson, specialist physiotherapist at University College London Hospital's Pain Management Centre. I'll just remind you that whilst we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Don't forget that you can download all editions of Airing Pain from Pain Concern's website, which is painconcern.org.uk. From Pain Concern's YouTube channel, just put Pain Concern and YouTube into your search engine and the same applies to Facebook. Now, at the start of the programme, we heard Professor Ed Keogh talking about gender differences in the experience of chronic pain. And so, to end this edition of Airing Pain, how relevant is his study, Men, Masculinity and Pain, to women? When we start thinking about gender and we start talking about things like masculinity and
3: femininity, well actually these are very fluid terms and they apply equally to both men and women. Okay, quite clearly when we think about men, we'll be thinking about masculinity, but these sort of ways of thinking, ways the beliefs we have, the the norms we have, they're relevant to both men and women. So I think by looking at the men's health literature, this really does apply to women's pain as well as men's pain. There's a lot we can learn here and apply and hopefully help both men and women who are in pain.